Greetings, friends, comrades, citizens, proletarians of every persuasion, and homo sapiens everywhere. You are listening to Democracy or Die, a force for authentic democracy, as it was understood by those humans who actually coined the word long ago and far away, not as a swamp of corruption, intrigue, and deceit, but an orderly, impartial, transparent process in which every citizen has an equal voice and money is irrelevant. And I'm your host, instigator, fellow traveler, and collaborator, Paul Rosenfeld, the diminutive and graying Spartacus of the wage slaves, a worker determined to live in an authentic democracy or die trying. And welcome back, friends. If you've been with me this far, you know I have some strong opinions on the subject of democracy, which led me to do strange and extreme things. And I've attempted to solicit some sympathy for these heretical beliefs of mine. But I know we've spent far too much time inside my head and not nearly enough in my cell. I promised to entertain you in the beginning of this series, and I think voyeurism not history or philosophy, is probably what you came for. Although there are millions in our prisons, I doubt you're one of them. You wish to know how the other half lives, and I will accommodate you. So, without further ado, let us return to our last known port of call in the federal justice system, Valhalla Prison in Westchester, New York. Chapter 4. Valhalla Many of the inhabitants of Valhalla are, indeed, fallen warriors, but Odin is nowhere to be found. These young soldiers are casualties of the war on drugs, actually an assault on brown people. The drugs are just a detail. A fellow passenger and the marshal's van advised me never to talk about my case with fellow prisoners. Everyone's a rat until proven otherwise. You might wish to spend an eternity with Odin, But the Westchester County Correctional Facility is no such promised land. People will do and say anything to get out. But I had a little opportunity to compromise myself. I was in an isolation unit with a 24-hour lockdown protocol. Occasionally, I glimpsed guards in riot gear attending to my neighbors, but mostly I was alone with my thoughts, which were exceedingly grim. The federal defender my court-appointed lawyer, had assured me that I was in deep shit. Perhaps 20 years was a bit much, but I could easily expect to do 10. My protestations of peaceful intent did nothing to alter her view. 20 years, 10 years, so far as I was concerned, they might as well have been light years. It was all the same. Without some sort of minor miracle, my life was over. Each hour became a nightmarish eternity. In Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel says the condemned prisoner will have irrational fantasies of release as he walks to the gas chamber. I imagined that Alan Dershowitz would take my case and clear my name. I even pleaded with my wife during a brief visit to contact him. I'd wrap myself in the First Amendment and become an American hero. This is the slender thread which helped to maintain my tenuous composure. That plus the thought of suicidal release. I vacillated 
between grandiosity and numbness. I've seen this latter emotion before, in the eyes of a squirrel in my dog's mouth. When my dog is finished, I take the squirrel by its tail and throw it over the chain-link fence into the woods. This appeared to be my future as well. After several days, my lawyer made an intervention and I was transferred to a less restrictive unit. I was clearly insane, but not perhaps so violent as to require full isolation. Now I could meet my fellow crazies. Finally, after all these decades, I'd located my peer group. But before I could get familiar with anyone, I sabotaged the opportunity by making preparations for suicide. On the first or maybe second day, a guard discovered me braiding a rope from strips of bedsheet. They knew this rope wasn't meant for escape. Not that kind, anyhow. Now I was on suicide watch, separated from the rest of the unit by a mesh partition with my own 24-hour guard. Still, for an isolation protocol, it was quite luxurious. I had my own cell, plus a corner of the common area, with table, chair, and pulp novel. I'd scored the only reading material on the entire unit, so far as I could tell, an ancient Star Trek novel. Without reading glasses, I found the project challenging, but under the circumstances, I was beyond desperate. Any distraction would do. So I read a heroic tale of the Enterprise and her daring intervention to save a doomed planet. The world in question faced imminent incineration by a supernova within weeks. No one could say exactly how much time was left, but clearly not enough for a full-scale evacuation. Only the rich and powerful could hope to escape. Sound familiar? It seems, under circumstances like this, a great many ordinary citizens will commit suicide. There is an idea. But that would be a mistake, of course, with Spock and Kirk around. Our heroes somehow engineer a black hole using the Enterprise's warp drive and move the planet out of harm's way to a new star just in the nick of time. With its themes of looming extinction, long odds, and desperate struggle, I feel a sixth sense of deja vu. I, too, am trying to rescue a planet, but a happy ending seems unlikely. Apparently, I'm just a nut who fancies himself a superhero. In time, I did strike up a relationship through the diamond mesh with one of my neighbors, a young kid from the sticks who'd made some unfortunate remarks on the internet. Kevin was raised in a home with a great many guns and plenty of right-wing radio. The lad's gone a little astray. Like so many others, he's been agitated to the point of verbal violence by our political system. I don't endorse his behavior, of course, but it's difficult not to sympathize. He's been a bystander to an ongoing media brawl his entire young life. Can we really blame him if he decides to chip in with a few choice comments of his own? Because he owned firearms and had no press manager to censor his remarks, he was now in grave danger of doing some serious time. But I doubt his threats were really serious. However, with the invention of the internet, we've entered the era of thought crime. Each word leaves an indelible record, which the guardians of public safety are forever pouring through. People have always said inflammatory things, but it's generally just hot air and horse shit. In the past, these comments usually dissipated harmlessly, like farts. Now, 
The unguarded remark will land you in prison. Again, I'm certainly not endorsing such behavior, but I don't think locking up children is the answer either. And if most of this hate is politically related, then wouldn't our energy be more appropriately addressed toward the cause and not the symptom? I also received daily visits from a psychiatrist who bore an uncanny likeness to Nurse Ratchet. She was there to assess liability, I think. It's awkward when prisoners die in custody. There could be legal consequences. I tried to explain that there's a difference between a sacrifice of conscience, such as my intended civil disobedience, and true pathologic suicidality. Also, that my current urges were merely an acute crisis induced by the federal government's reflexive and absurdly disproportionate response to my actions. I didn't consider myself to be truly, truly suicidal in the pathologic sense, but under the circumstances, what sane person wouldn't think about offing themselves? She seemed incapable of appreciating these obvious distinctions and responded with a series of lame and inane questions I couldn't answer or even make sense of. After she left, my neighbor concurred that her questions were utter nonsense. Ratchet may have been irrational, but she obviously understood the danger I represented. I was a wrongful death suit just waiting to happen. Valhalla is a county facility which accepts federal prisoners conditionally. I was literally more trouble than I was worth. My wife could have told her that. Ratchet ordered my transfer to a federal facility, but of course she didn't tell me this. No one ever tells you anything in prison. If you're lucky, they remember to throw a bologna sandwich at you periodically. At 5 a.m., with the unit still dark, the federal marshals were at my cell door telling me to get dressed. They said they were taking me to court, but my first thought was these guys had been sent to disappear me. Call me paranoid if you like, but I was attempting to subvert the existing political order, and the feds had already chosen to turn my modest fireworks into a high-powered bomb. Perhaps their disproportionate response would also include relocating me to a landfill, cement port, or black site somewhere. For someone already suicidal, you might think a government assassin is a welcome visitor, but I was vacillating on this issue. I really wanted to make that call on my own. I still don't think these fears were entirely unreasonable, but as a new fish, I simply didn't understand that transfers often take place in the dead of night when traffic is light. Your comfort is not the government's concern. In fact, sometimes prison transit actually verges on torture. But this was just an average run to the Manhattan courthouse. The marshals wanted to beat the traffic. Chapter 5. Manhattan Federal Court All civilization, so-called, is founded on the division of labor which is a polite way of saying slavery. Yes, we did get opera, and even Oprah out of the deal, but in the final analysis, you and I both exist to pay taxes and furnish cannon fodder. Anything extra you can get out of the deal is purely a bonus. Traditionally, the formula ran something like this. 90 downtrodden peasants to feed the kingdom, two artisans to furnish shelter, clothing, and armaments, three sheriffs to keep them all in line, 
two knights to defend the realm, a scholar and a priest to sanctify it, and one noble to run the show. These proportions are approximate. Today, in the post-industrial era, it runs more like this. 90 wage slaves, five managers and cops to keep them in place, two soldiers to ensure national security, two media executives to sanctify it, and one hedge fund manager to run the whole show. I've always been a wage slave, but have held a variety of different positions over the years. Once, long ago, I was a restoration painter. On one assignment, I lovingly reattached loose paint and gold leaf to the ornate ceiling of the Manhattan Federal Courthouse. I didn't think of myself as a slave exactly, but it was thankless and backbreaking work. Not so far off from building pyramids, really. My comrades and I spent many months necks craned, lavishing our attention on minute details rarely observed while inhaling copious amounts of solvents. One visitor to the courthouse, a medical professional, on observing our labors warned, keep that up and you'll all be crippled by middle age. We ignored him, but he was right. Today, I've already had one round of spinal surgery and there's more to come, I expect. My body's spent, but my bank account remains empty, though I rarely miss today's work. Sounds like slavery to me. And when I objected to the arrangement, they put me in a dungeon, the basement of the federal courthouse at 500 Pearl Street. Shackles, like so much in prison, are an acquired taste. Gliding slowly down the West Side Highway during rush hour, shoulder to shoulder in a packed van with grated windows, is claustrophobia-inducing, even without the additional insult of chains. I suspect Roman galley slaves had more freedom of movement. I was on the verge of a panic attack during much of the ride from White Plains, but managed just barely to hold it all together and exchange some pleasantries with my neighbor, a slender, Buddha-like figure holding a bottle of asthma medicine in his delicately manacled hands. Mike was a white-collar criminal, really a no-collar criminal, I suppose. Well, let's say Hawaiian print. He'd been on a years-long vacation in Europe and Asia when the feds caught up with him, all funded, apparently, by some sort of illegal internet activity. I know nothing about the details, but have to respect anyone who's found a way out of the rat race without using a gun. If he was scamming idiots or skimming nickels and dimes off some large institution, I say more power to him. Better an electronic bandit than penniless peon in this capitalist anarchy of ours. Mike was 20 years my junior, but I automatically had some paternal transference because he exuded calm and knowledge. He was the opposite of my deer-in-the-headlights routine. Mike was a hibernating squirrel, complacently awaiting spring. A jailhouse lawyer and computer hacker, he was admirably adapted to his environment, something no one is ever likely to say about me. His cache of nuts and his mate would be waiting when the snow melted. I asked for a legal prognosis and explained the charges as best I could, Mike said I should have simply used gasoline and passed on the black powder. The feds would have had much less to work with. 
He didn't chastise me for my bleeding heart foolishness, however, though I'm sure his own practical soul could never entertain such an absurdity as self-immolation. Mike's professional opinion was that I was probably looking at a year and a day, despite all the terrorism hoopla, which was really just window dressing. Probably nothing more than that. He was looking at a few years himself, but there was a view of the mountains at the New Mexico prison he was designated for. His commissary account would always be full, and his woman could be expected to visit weekly. Mike was ready for winter. There's no gold leaf in the basement of 500 Pearl Street. It's an up-to-date dungeon, windowless and gray, but clean and well-ventilated. Sometimes they'll even feed you, but not always. It's hit or miss on that point. The bullpen here provided my first proper preview of a general population of federal prisoners. Valhalla may not have been wholly representative, a little too white and a little too wacky. Here, it was the standard melting pot many shades of tan and several different languages. Again, I thought of Imperial Rome, a full panoply from the provinces. Barbarians, perhaps, but it's all a matter of perspective. To me, they were just fellow victims. And as Orwell said, if there's hope, it lies with the proles. Animals and proles are free, unlike their brainwashed brethren in the party, Ingsoc or otherwise. Across from me, a trio of good-natured, fair-skinned Slavs lounged on one of the benches. Seeming very much at home, they looked more as though they were in a nightclub rather than a jail. They were amiable, but their English was broken. Conversation was somewhere between difficult and impossible. At one point, however, the phrase Russian Mafia did come up, and we all had a good long laugh. Many a truth. Next to me was a young, muscle-bound black man, an ex-marine going by the name of Bull. And there were also, as always, an assortment of mid-tones characters, all speaking Spanish, but quite prepared to indulge a linguistically handicapped gringo. I found this to be true almost everywhere I went. Folks rarely discriminate against the endangered indigenous population. Still, there, there is a pecking order. I knew I was supposed to be tight-lipped, spies everywhere and whatnot, but I could never maintain that stance for long. I'm an open book, always have been. Seeking wisdom from my wizened peers, Bull assured me I was probably in Manhattan to receive some additional charges and another perp walk. He said the initial appearance was merely for the holding charges, but with a terrorist trophy like me, the prosecutor would undoubtedly want a second better photo op. Despite Mike's earlier predictions of leniency, it was the unanimous opinion of the assembled company that as an enemy of the state, I'd probably never see daylight again. I did understand that this was mostly playful ribbing, but still, who knows? In typical form, I initiated a discussion on the subject of prison suicide. What was the best means for offing oneself behind bars? This led to much jovial banter regarding the relative merits of blade and noose. Ah, good times. We laugh, so we won't cry. It was a long day, they always are. But in the end, I never went upstairs, never got to see how my paintwork was holding up. It turned out Manhattan Federal Court was just a way station for me, a convenient hub for prison transit in the metro area. 
My real destination, as determined by Nurse Ratchet at Valhalla, was the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, a federal holding facility, my happy home for the next 10 months. Sometime after dark, during the evening rush, we shackled up for the van ride to MDC. Over the Brooklyn Bridge and through Flatbush, there's a special poignancy evoked traveling through the great city in chains. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's real. My fellow passengers, however, young soldiers all, felt none of this sadness seemingly. With the radio turned to WBLS and the hip-hop throbbing, the entire van swayed to the beat as they sang along. I think it's touching how the marshals almost always accommodate the musical taste of their charges. At first I found this scene confounding, and then it hit me. This ritual and others like it are nothing more than an obligatory rite of passage for young men from the hood. As youths, we will endure almost anything in the name of social assimilation and advancement. These young men were gangsters. They were going to get rich or die trying. Either option was vastly preferable to working at Amazon. And who am I to say otherwise? Once, four decades prior, I had aspired to nothing greater than a place on the floor of an oil drilling rig. The work was filthy and dangerous, but there was a sense of pride and belonging. We were Marlboro men. As youths, we'll do anything to belong. A lifetime later, I was quite willing to die in the name of not belonging. I would at least expire with my dignity intact if I successfully expressed my utter contempt for this suicidal social catastrophe we mistakenly call democracy. Plutocracy and democracy share a suffix, and that is all. Entirely different animals. <clears throat> In the loading bay at MDC, the marshals removed our leg irons, with one officer expressing his displeasure at an instance of government goods damaged in transit. With the shackles over-tightened, one of my peers had suffered some bruising. The marshal wanted to know which of his colleagues at the courthouse was responsible. Who did this? Was it a stupid-looking white guy? You can be honest. The relationship between captor and captive is complicated. There are elements of Stockholm Syndrome, survivor's guilt, and garden-variety sadism all mixed together, not to mention plenty of racism. The marshal genuinely felt bad, or at least wanted us to believe he did. It's, it's hard to know which. From the loading bay, they buzzed us through the door to reception. Strip-searched, particle-scanned, and outfitted with brown jumpsuits, we then completed a lengthy intake questionnaire with a two-inch stub that passes for a pencil in prison. My peers coached me on this. Mike had persuaded me that a long history of illegal drug abuse would bolster my insanity defense. So, like a spy learning his cover, I accepted a tutorial on the varieties of illegal substances which might have led to my various presumed psychoses. And in truth, however, I've never enjoyed anything harder than the occasional shot of whiskey or a tiny bit of pot. On the same page as my drug history, it asked if I wished to receive psychiatric therapy. Because I'd never been to a federal prison before, I actually imagined that this might be a serious question, and I gratefully answered yes. For years, decades, my wife had been trying to get me in front of a shrink. 
Better late than never, right? Perhaps this might even have saved me from the gnarly scar and nightmarish voice that came with my botched throat slicing a few weeks later. Forms completed, we were interviewed one at a time by a white-haired grandfatherly CEO who successfully conveyed an impression of empathy, thus further inviting me to imagine that federal incarceration would be a su superior to the New York product, an illusion that was short-lived. This processing and sorting involved regular shuffling from one small holding cell to another as we slowly drew toward our ultimate destination an elevator ride to one of the units. My peers went to the third floor, which is the intake unit. Everyone stops here for a TB test. Usually this takes a week or two. I was special though. I'd come from Valhalla under a suicide watch protocol, so I went to the fifth floor. I would have my own cell, a rare luxury in the federal system, but it's an extra that you do pay for. Chapter six, show me your hands. Two centuries ago, our forebearers were farmers. A hundred years later, the greatest number worked in factories. Today, we live in a post-industrial world. Few farm jobs, very little factory work, but we do have Amazon and Walmart, or is it just Amazon now, and, and how long before they automate? Human labor has become largely superfluous, but sadly, for many, the product of our hands and minds is all we've got. This antiquated currency is the only commodity we possess in an establishment still run on strict capitalist principles. With no property to speak of and no voice in government, we are forced to make our way as best we can. As consumers, we're a necessary part of the system. But as producers, we have little to offer, and as sentient entities, we can represent a nuisance. Sometimes we object to these arrangements, or even worse, seek to compete with the authorized purveyors. These troublemakers must be dealt with. Once, there were many options for dealing with undesirables. Confined at the workhouse, pressed into the Navy, transported to the colonies, prison was just one option among many. But today, our labor has much less value, and the ideological requirements of equality and freedom assert that the government can't just sweep you off the street simply because you are dirty and idle. Hence our modern crime wave and the vast proliferation of prisons. Of course, this gulag archipelago does represent an industry in its own right, so it's not all bad. The inmates must be housed and fed and transported throughout the land. Money will be made. I even met one inmate whose spouse works as a CEO, and I'm told this isn't really so unusual. One hand washes the other. I suspect these couples must engage in some very interesting sexual practices, if and when they're ever reunited. But there are drawbacks to warehousing people like this, or at least complications. A substantial number will kill themselves, or at least try. And an empty cell is every bit as bad as an empty hotel room. Although, the DOJ does excel at filling beds. Because the government is legally required to treat us humanely, the suicidal prisoner cannot simply be ignored. Treatment must be provided. 
But the psychiatric lobby in Washington is probably less effective than that of the building contractors and food commodity purveyors. So care needs to be rationed. Not every suicidal inmate can receive counseling. The answer to this quandary is that therapy will be combined with torture. In other words, the beatings will continue until morale improves. After a few days of suicide protocol, we're all quite happy to return to the general population. On the fifth floor, once or twice a day, I did actually see a bona fide psychiatrist. Not that I ever reviewed their credentials. They were outside the cell and I was inside. Communication through the heavy plate glass was nearly impossible. I articulated my displeasure at being placed in a dungeon merely for attempting to express my political views, and they expressed their polite concern and left after five minutes. Between treatments, I was free to enjoy the accommodations. A cold, bare cell utterly devoid of amenities, an 8x10 cell with nothing in it, absolutely barren for your protection. They even took my clothing and provided a quilted shipping blanket in exchange. And did I say cold? I am not kidding. It felt like it was about 45, maybe 50 degrees in there. The shipping blanket had some decent thermal value, but my bare feet on the concrete floor began to grow numb eventually, and I also developed blisters. With nothing else to do, I probably paced five to 10 miles that first day. I imagined myself a soldier at Valley Forge. Eventually, of course, after a long day of pacing, it's good to lie down and get a full night's sleep so as to be fresh for the next round. It's a little tough though. Although there is a thin rubber pad to lie down on, the lights never go out, and all efforts to huddle under the shipping quilt are sternly reproached. Your head and hands must remain visible at all times. Presumably the truly determined inmate may commit suicide under the cover of the blanket using only their bare hands, although I'm sure I don't know how this could even be possible. Between the glaring lights and frigid cold, I found it nearly impossible to sleep. Occasionally, I'd sneak my head and hands under the cover and catch a few minutes respite, but then I'd wake up to the CO's harsh warning, show me your hands. Those hands, those uniquely dexterous digits of ours with the opposable thumbs and the oh-so-delicate touch, We've gotten a lot of mileage out of them over the last million years or so, but I think they may finally have outlived their usefulness. They seem to have next to no value in the capitalist economy these days, and so far as I can see, all they do now is get us in trouble. They've even prevented me from getting a decent night's sleep. After several days of this treatment, I found my suicidal urges much abated. I assured my keepers that I was more than ready to return to the general population on the intake unit, and they were happy to send me on my way, as this opened up their facility to other, more deserving patients. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode's brief tour of one tiny corner in the American Gulag. It's an exotic place if you've never been, but it does get old quickly. A little goes a long way. My year seemed like a lifetime, but for you, I'm certain the time will pass painlessly enough, provided you choose to continue. Spoiler alert! In our next episode, I'll be passing the hat, soliciting your support and attempting to enlist you in my, as yet, 
non-existent flock. So if you wish to avoid being assaulted in such a manner, you should probably drop out now. Otherwise, there may be no going back. Still, while the path ahead may not be for the faint of heart, I do hope you'll continue. Until then, my friends, 